don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, who cares for Chilean cities? With Francisco Diaz. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Francisco Diaz who is uh, an architect and a teacher at the, in uh, the architecture department at the Catholic University in Santiago de Chile. Uh, he's also the editor-in-chief of uh, Arc Publisher and um, his work is mainly, f is mainly focused on uh, theory and critique. Uh, hello Francisco. Hi Leopold. <laughs> Thank you for talking to me in this uh, quite incredible space, one of the oldest uh, oldest uh, uh, building in uh, in Chile, as you mm. were telling me, right? Yeah, yes. an old monastery that is still alive yeah. after so many earthquakes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, um, and so today we will uh, have a conversation that is uh, specifically focused on uh, uh, Chilean cities, and, um, and uh, I'm really happy to have to be able to have this uh, specificity of topic uh, 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 through this uh, throughout this series of, of podcasts in Latin America. Uh, so thank you for talking with me. And um, but maybe just to start this conversation, can you can you tell us a little bit what you're what you're doing these days? What what's your work is about recently? Uh, well, uh, I am actually teaching at the Catholic University in Santiago. I just came back to Santiago at the end of last year, so it's uh, my first year after uh, two seasons in New York. And now I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of RQ Publishers, which is the publisher house of uh, the Catholic University, the School of Architecture of the Catholic University, and I teach there also theory and criticism classes. And I don't know, I mean, perhaps that's the most basic thing. I mean, that's, that's uh, the work that I do here, but course the interests are bigger than that mm -hmm. I mean and you, you just said that you you came back to Santiago you came mm -hmm. back from New York where mm -hmm. you uh, graduated from the the CCC, uh, CCCP program yeah. in Columbia University which we already had two guests uh, of Archipelago who did the same program uh, Nina Kolobratnik and uh, Greg Barton yeah. so uh, I'm very happy to keep having a people uh, from this great program on, on Archipelago. Um, <coughs> uh, so so to, to begin with uh, our conversation specifically about um, Chilean cities, you very recently published a book and uh, had, a, had a conference, uh, both with the same name, which in English is uh, Who Cares for Chilean Cities? And from what you told me, um, uh, this title has been quite polemical uh, here in Chile. So, uh, could could you maybe tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, the, the title comes from a paradox, which is that in the last years in Chile we have had a lot of super good architects, but uh, these super good architects have, have not been able to let's say do something for the cities in Chile. I mean, Chilean cities are. I mean, are not the best one. Nobody comes to Chile to see the cities itself. It's mostly a geography and the landscape. But, well, 90% of the people in Chile live in cities. So it's, uh, it's quite contradictory, in a way, to have this super good generation of architects 
and to have, let's say, so bad or ugly cities <laughs> in general. So the title was, of course, polemical in that sense because it was pointing out to the architects, who, well, who, who's taking care of, who's taking care of this question of this problem. I mean, considering the city as a problem, but it also was polemical because uh, most architects uh, of the, in a way, the previous generation, I'm 34, but I'm talking about people between 40 and 50, uh, they, were, they thought that they were concerning about cities, they were, but they actually never realized that they were missing a point. You know, the, I mean, they were saying, "Yeah, of course, we speak out cities. We are interested in cities." But yeah, then you you ask them, "Well, what did you do for the cities?" And then they say, "Well, we were super concerned, <laughs> but nothing happened at the end." So, uh, in a way, this book this book uh, is marking a, a sort of turning point in the discourse in Chilean architecture from the pure, pristine architecture of this beautiful boxes in the landscape that you may probably may know to a lot of of publications, international publications, and changing the discourse to say, okay, well, that's super good, but now we have to focus on cities. That's where people live, and that's where where our work as architects uh, has the, I would say, the most important effect if we we take it into consideration, I would say. And so the book, the book, the book uh, translates well your, uh, let's say, your bridge between uh, between New York and uh, and Santiago or Chile in general, because you you have um, you have uh, about what ten contributors and mm. um, and uh, some of them are uh, pretty well known in the in the New York world of architecture. I mean, Mark Wigley and Wicky Walker, uh, Stan Allen, uh, not in architecture but still around the the little streets of uh, Columbia University's campus, uh, Saskia Sassen mm-hmm. as well, and uh, and you put those people in um, in the dialogue with uh, more local uh, thinkers. So could you maybe introduce the book? Yeah, in, in it's this uh, well, this book, uh, it's I would say the end uh, stage of a longer project that began in 2013. Yes, 2013, with a conference with you in in New York, in Columbia University which has the same name, Who Cares for Chilean Cities. And in a way, I was sort of taking advantage of the position of being in New York because from there you can question what is going on here in Santiago right now because you have the freedom to, 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 to put questions on the agenda. And since when you do something in New York, it has repercussions everywhere. So I knew that it was going to be quite polemic here in, in Chile. And then... We had a second conference uh, here in Santiago last year in uh, October, and then with that material we we compiled it and we had some stuff and we uh, finally ended up publishing this book. But but uh, I mean the, the book is not a, a, pro- a product in itself, but it's the end of a longer project that it took at least two two years in development. But it was tending as as I said before to in a way changed the, the focus of the discussion in Chile. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, and it, it, ha, it has been quite successful in, the, in those terms, in mm-hmm. a way, I would say. Um, and so uh, within, within those uh, contributors, uh, the, the ones I, I'm familiar with, uh, I suppose, uh, 
the one that I have a, a, the biggest interest for it would be Saskia Sassen. Mm. And you, in your introduction to the book, you you quote her right away, saying the city is where the powerless can make history. Um, how does that apply in the context of uh, Chile? It's, uh, I would say it has two branches, uh, the contribution uh, or that idea. On the one hand, you have the idea that is quite clear in that quote from Saskia, that is that if the city is the place where the powerless can make history, it means that the powerless is an actor in the city. Uh, so city is not a place only for the elites. It's a place where everyone can do something, which means that it's a political place, of course, because you have deliberation. You have different interests, different actors that are in the same place taking decisions or doing something for the others or concerning even for themselves. But they are, uh, there's a dialogue, and, uh, and that dialogue is, of course, political. So it's, uh, on the one hand, that, that quote connects the city with, uh, in a way, or puts the, the city in a political context, or as a place for the political to appear. And on the other hand, that quote, it's super related with some things that have been happening in, in Chile in the last years, mostly in 2011 with the protests and demonstrations made by the Chilean students. I mean, they were the powerless at that moment. So with these I mean, concerns in, the, in our heads, I mean, that quote was uh, super precise to, to describe these um, two branches. On the one hand, the city as a political place. I mean, it's uh, in a way thinking of the city as a, or thinking of cities from a theoretical point of view. And on the other hand, thinking the city is as something that it's alive and where things are happening. In, in, in that moment and so if you connect the, that idea with what's going on at that, at that moment with the students I mean it's it fits perfect within, within mm. the context or within the local context in a way <coughs> and so it, it's been only three years but could you maybe remind us of the mm. historical context of those massive <coughs> student protests mm. well it's interesting because I don't know if you know that but Chile it's Chile was the laboratory of the neoliberalism in the world. Mm. We, uh, we, have the, we were the first country in which neoliberalism was tested before the U.S. and before the U.K. in 1975. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but uh, in the U.S., uh, the neoliberalism was adapted in the, uh, the Union of the 80s with Reagan, mm -hmm. and in England and the U.K. was in 1979 with Margaret Thatcher. Here we had uh, the first changed uh, to neoliberalism in 1975 with Pinochet. So it was a system, an economical system, that was imposed to us by force. Mm -hmm. And But after 17 years of dictatorship, Chile became the most neoliberalist, neoliberalist country in the world, I would say. It's like, I call it like the North Korea of neoliberalism, in a way. I mean, you, you have... Uh, public education, you don't have uh, public health, you know, I mean uh, all those issues that are super well covered by the welfare state, we have nothing here. So that's the background of the history and then when the dictatorship ended in 1990 there were um, four consecutive um, center left the government but they kept the system. So, in a way, uh, students in 2011 were the generation that was born after dictatorship. 
and they so they didn't have the fear of the dictatorship in their backgrounds. So in 2011, let's say we are talking about people of 20 years old, 21 years old, born in 1990-1991. They went out to the street and saying, "Well, we don't like the system. Basically, we don't like we don't like to." I mean, uh, a system in which you don't have any rights I mean, and where you have to pay for everything. So that's the background of all that, um, all those demonstrations that we had in 2011 that were huge. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did once the, the history of those mobilizations and we had around, there were 16 mobilizations I mean, or demonstrations in this city, I mean, Santiago here in this street. And they were huge, I mean, from 20,000 people to 2,100 people. 200,000? 200,000 mm. people, so it's a huge uh, amount of people in the, on the streets um, showing their discontent with the, with the neoliberal system that was applied I mean, for, uh, to education, to health, to uh, pensions, but also to the cities. Mm -hmm. and, uh, where, where, which is the point where it connects with the the book and all those concerns for that, for us as architects are super. Uh, it should be super interesting. I can see we have our, we have some uh, past reminiscence uh, sound <laughs> going yeah. on at the same time. Uh, um, um, but so, would you would you say that those uh, those massive protests have been having an impact on? Um, on uh, Chilean cities and, and Santiago in particular, or maybe it's a little bit early to say. I mean, it's in a way it's early to say it, but they are generating something. Mm -hmm. I would say, for instance, the concern about the heritage in cities, because uh, you have seen the, all the new skyscrapers and towers and that you you can see everywhere. Mm -hmm. They are in a way the uh, manifestation of neoliberalism neo or cities, I mean, basically. Um, getting the most uh, profit from a single site, uh, a single location. Um, so a way to resist that is to claim in favor of the heritage of the cities. I mean, all neighborhoods and all that stuff. And there are people mobilizing for us for that right now, which is a very interesting process because in a way it's a bit contradictory. Because if you think heritage is, uh, I mean, it's basically... Uh, heritage comes from the elites mm -hmm. of let's say a hundred years ago and now these people are protesting uh, in favor of heritage but against neoliberalism which is in a way quite contradictory but it's interesting because it's, uh, it shows you how those protests or that culture of demonstration is having an effect on cities. I mean a lot of projects uh, urban projects like these towers or all that stuff are being paralyzed or stopped by this, those demonstrations, which, I mean, as far as I remember, it never happened before. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, and it's early to say if, if it will have a lasting effect on cities, but nowadays you can see some things that are going on, and they're probably, it may be interesting in the future, or, or have some interesting effects on the future. Um. I mean, as as always in this series of podcasts in Latin America, I'm, I'm speaking very much from an uh, outsider point of view. But uh, from what from what I understand, those, those towers are being built in a relatively still central 
area mm. in Santiago, but there's, there's still uh, there's still a lot of remote uh, neighborhoods in the west that are that there were uh, are concentrated the working class uh, uh, inhabitants. So there there is a sort of uh, of I mean like like in many cities of the world, but there seems to be a a pretty strong segregation in terms of uh, social classes, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that comes from, uh, I would say, from the 60s. Mm. In the 60s, uh, there were uh, huge migrations from people from the countryside to the city. And they were, they began to be located in the south of the city because the city was, I mean, uh, was built in the 19th century. It was the, this area, the center and the downtown. But it was, uh, in a way, for the um, middle class and high class. People and then when these um, migrations from the countryside began to arrive to the city, they, they were located. They, they began to be located in the south and in the west of the city. And they settled there, finally. And they, but those neighborhoods uh, from the very beginning were segregated in a way, and the city never absorbs them. Never absorbs them in a in a way that it's. Uh, that goes in favor of those people because they have to, for instance, they have to take a bus to get to work and two hours, let's say, in, in a bus. Santiago is a huge city. I mean, it's, it's hard to perceive it from the, when you're in the downtown, mm -hmm. but it's huge. It's, it's, uh, if you go to the top of the hill, the San Cristobal Hill, you, you will see uh, the, the area of the cities, and it's like Los Angeles, I was telling you before but with less people, so it means that it has super low density in, the, in those neighborhoods, so they have to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, every day they commute. Commuting, the average commuting here is two hours, more or less. And we have, let's say, four million of people living in those conditions, while the rest of the city is kind of uh, sort of first world city, and so you have that, that, that division, which is quite clear, mm -hmm. if you go to the south or to the west. To the west. And um, as we were talking a little bit uh, uh, in the last podcast with uh, Liliana de Simone, yeah. um, there's also this uh, <coughs> historical fire in the last in, in this year that that's been also showing the extreme precariousness of this neighborhoods. Right, this fire who just burned down in uh, Valparaiso. Yeah, yeah. I think was in Valparaiso. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So, but another another Chilean city. Yeah, yeah, Valparaiso is, uh, I would say, the second most important Chilean city. It used to be a main port uh, city in Latin America and all South America before the Cana Panama Canal. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, still it's an amazing city, super beautiful. But when the fire came, it was, say, in April mm -hmm. this year, there were around 3,000 houses uh, burned, completely burned. And w what is interesting is that when you, after the fire was controlled and all the people evacuated and all the houses were burned, you see that the hills in which Valparaiso is, and there were, there was no urban infrastructure there. It's like it's like a refugee camp, mm. with no 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 urban infrastructure, no lights, no sewage, no water. And when you when you see um, when when you saw Valparaiso before that, uh, you saw a, a beautiful city with hills and houses on the hills. But when those houses were removed in a way by the fire, you see nothing. 
no urban structure, no traces of urban infrastructure, which is which shows you, in a way, the actual, I would say, condition of Chilean cities. And yeah, that's happening in the periphery of Santiago as well, but you cannot see them mm-hmm. because it's flat. <laughs> and and obviously, I'm sure that the similar thing happens with the earthquakes, like the one in 2010. Yeah. Obviously, the most precarious uh, uh, lives in those in those conditions are always the the lower social classes, right? Yeah, yeah. They, well, of course, uh, if you uh, well lower social classes, uh, they live where they can. Mm-hmm. Nor where no, they don't live where they choose to live, of course. So when the earthquake, the earthquake uh, happened, uh, most of the people was uh, they they were in a way evicted from the city. Because uh, their houses uh, uh, fell down and they have no place to live, so they were evicted to the uh, peripheries of the city, creating again another circuit or circle of segregation similar to what happened in the 60s in Santiago. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were living probably in uh, another cities in the country, small cities, but living in the center in old houses that were uh, originally abandoned by higher classes. And they were using those spaces, super good located. So they, have, I mean, they walked to to work but by ten, for ten minutes. Uh, I mean, the commuting what, what commuting was not a problem for them before the earthquake. But after the earthquake, they were re, uh, moved to uh, peripheries, and a new si- circle of segregation began because now they are in the outskirts mm-hmm. of the city. So it's a kind of. Uh, uh, It generates uh, ghettos, urban ghettos, in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> and so, in the in the book we were talking about earlier, um, you're considering uh, a few case studies of architectures or public spaces that can have the let's uh, say the power at the at their own scale. Like I mean, it's always mm-hmm. a limited scale, but at their own scale to maybe generate something within those Chilean cities? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, th- there's a, the, the cases were selected by three guest curators that we invited to, to present, to select the cases that will be an example of how the city should grow or to evolve to a more, I don't know, uh, democratic place in a way, considering that m- political nature of the city. So the, the question is how... T- If, if you to, if you understand the city as a political place, the question for us is how to make it more democratic and more accessible and more egalitarian place. So these cases were showing a path or how to make it. Supposedly, I mean, mm-hmm. they they have the DNA of how to do it. Of course, it's too early to say because they are uh, from the last five years, so they haven't evolved yet. So we don't know how, uh, um, what will be their development in time, but I think that the, the idea was to have those um, cases that show a different DNA uh, for, for the city. And I will say that the most interesting one in those terms was a plan uh, directed by the government uh, which was uh, focused on recording uh, super poor low class neighborhoods and they were intervening them but on teaching people, I mean, it, it was not an urban intervention, which is interesting. It's, it was not an architectural intervention. The, the intervention uh, consists consisted of uh, teaching people how to participate in the decisions, mm-hmm. how to m- turn the people into an actor of their own conditions of living. 
which I, I think it's uh, the right way to intervene in, so in those territories. Because if you go as an architect there and you design a super good park or a super good sidewalk, it doesn't have any effect. The real effect is when you teach people to 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 be a, an actual actor of uh, to to defend themselves themselves to 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 teach them that they have rights and they have the possibility to improve their conditions for life, but not giving from the top-down approach, classical. Mm -hmm. I mean, to just to say, well, I did this work here, but it's a it's a more complex process, of course, but it's a, it has bare effects in the in the population, I think, and that's my favorite project of the in the book, which is the the one that has the, the I mean the worst images, by the way, <laughs> because the, what? the worst images, oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's impossible to represent that process of participation in images as we, as architects are usually used to do. Mm -hmm. But can can you describe a little bit more in detail what what would be uh, uh, the possibilities for anyone to be able to to participate, as you say, or to <coughs> which which is a word that's been used many many times in yeah, the recent yeah. uh, architectural debate but i mean it's it's still interesting to to talk about it is like what what yeah i think you you just talked about yeah. rights so that would be at the legal level but i'm yeah. sure that there's much more yeah, yeah. i mean the, the the problem with participation i think and, and i agree with you completely that it's uh, it, it runs the danger of becoming a cliche I mean, that's uh, everyone says uh, I know a participatory, participatory architecture and all that stuff. But when you when you understand how the logics of the government work and how what's the legal background for people to do something for themselves uh, and what are the chances. I don't know for people, common people, to enter into the public programs of uh, to raise funds for pro small projects and all that stuff. Uh, they they begin to learn how to, and then they become they they become actors. And that's uh, I think it's interesting because it creates it creates in a way a change in the culture of people. They are not waiting, they are no longer waiting for someone to tell them what to do and or someone to help them from above. Mm -hmm. But they they take the responsibility by themselves, and I think it, that's in, that's an interesting turning point in the discussion about participatory architecture or urban design. It's not the, that the architect comes and says, "Well, this is my project. What do you think about it?" And well, probably you draw some lines in a plan, and that's all. And that's yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a constant, I mean, long-term process in which you teach basically uh, the idea of participation implies the fact that you have to give your power to others you have to um, basically refuse or oh, it's not refuse the, the right word but to to resign to the power that you have because of course if you are an architect or you are a government officer or some or someone like that you have a power because that it's defined by your knowledge of course but if you give that power to others, if you teach them to use to use it, I mean, I think it creates, it helps to create a a better a better citizenship, I would say, and people gets more aware of uh, get more aware of the 
the, their conditions of living and how, how to improve them. I think that's not an architectural project as we used to. It's not an urban project. It's, a, it's another kind of project, but that has a huge impact in the, in the way cities develop in the, in the future, I think. I don't know if you agree with that. No, no, yeah, and I mean, I can relate it to um, some other projects uh, in, uh, in other cities. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the uh, Center for Urban Pedagogy mm. in, in New York, mm. uh, which um, uh, through the help of very... Uh, didactic mm. graphic design manage, manages to communicate mm. about various policies mm. and legal rights that one might be entitled in various situations mm. uh, uh, that that all have like spatial special sp spatial um, uh, conditions uh, mm. from from being being arrested when you're 15 years mm. old to uh, yeah. to knowing knowing what the policies of uh, of uh, public housing in New York uh, Or, um, or the the limits of their uh, circumscriptions uh, limits in California and mm -hmm. how, how when those limits are being modified, uh, their, uh, how how those limits can be manipulated and mm -hmm. therefore how can how can those how this kind of manipulation should be uh, fought against. Um, But I'm, I'm still wondering whether it's, it's, it is what we're talking about at a, at a kind no. of a go governance level or, or are we talking about more practical... Uh, no, it's, uh, it's different because um, it's, it, it comes from the government, which means that you have the, power, the actual power to do something if you participate in that. It's not a, it's not a kind of um, outsider project. It's, uh, it's uh, centralized. But it's different because the government does not come with their project and impose it to a community. The government enters in that community, understands that community, and teach the, uh, give, um, the, 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 I don't know, it's, uh, it teaches to a, to, to a community how to defend by themselves. And it's not only a question of what, are, what your rights are or what the possibilities that you have to, to do something are, but rather, I would say, it's, uh, it's related to the fact that it turns people that have probably no education into someone that begins to, to understand him, him or her, herself as an actor, as a participant of the city, as a participant of the community which is different than saying, well, this is uh, your right here, you have a pamphlet where it explains uh, what to do if the police uh, count to you. It's different. Uh, people that have no education probably, no education at all. I mean, some of them, some of them probably don't know how to read or how to, uh, how to write. And it's a, uh, that's why I say that it's a super complex and long-term process. It's not a question of doing an event and going to the community and say, well, these are your rights. No, it's a, it's a process of teaching. It's like going to a school, but when this, it's like the school going to your community and generating something there. Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, it goes, uh, it uses probably the some, of some, some similar strategies, but the, the aim is completely different. Uh, okay. The, um, the the last thing I wanted to talk about, mm -hmm. which is uh, a little bit unrelated, but actually not so unrelated um, to the Chilean cities, is, is the fact that um, 
something I recently learned uh, through you, which is the fact that Chile is um, would be the the country in the world, the non-Arab country in the world that would have the biggest uh, population of yeah. Palestinian refugees, yeah. and uh, after 1948, and um, and I would like to hear you more about that because it's a part, it's a it's a particularity of of Chile that I was not aware of and that I find very interesting with this existence of their football team as well. Yeah. So c could you could you maybe tell us about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I don't know why it happened, really. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the um, the conditions that allowed that to happen, but it's true. We have uh, the probably the biggest uh, Palestinian community in a non-Arab Arab country in the in the world, and it's a super active community. It has, uh, as you told us uh, last night, in in Palestine, it has a high class part of that. Usually, they, they are high class here. They are uh, textile entrepreneurs and they. They, they, they began, as, as far as I remember uh, from the history, uh, they, they ran the first uh, textiles company in Chile, the biggest one, and they, they are now some of them are super rich, I mean, we have to say it, and they, uh, they have this team, uh, they, they, this football team, which is called Palestino, Palestinian, basically, and, and it's a super active community. Um, they have a sort of neighborhood uh, in across the river in the north, which is uh, kind of sort of the garment district of Santiago, because they run all the uh, fashion design and all that stuff, all, all those kind of uh, enterprises in, in 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 Chile. All right. Well, I hope that uh, throughout this conversation we showed uh, a care for the Chilean cities, <laughs> as, as the question of the book uh, yeah. suggests. Uh, uh, thank you very much for, for taking this time with me and, uh, and uh, for uh, organizing part of my visit here. <laughs> thank no, you, Francisco. No, thanks to you, Leopold, for coming here. I think it's, uh, for us it's, it's great to have you here in Santiago <laughs> to know the, the, the reality from inside. And to have, uh, I mean, uh, an interesting guest uh, that can tell us a lot of stuff that we don't realize necessarily from our point of view. Uh, I forgot to mention something sure. that uh, that I think it's super interesting to take into consideration. We are in the farthest corner of the world, so uh, our contact with what's going on in our countries is super small, super small, super super small. And I think that when people like you come here to visit us, eh, in a way, it's like opening a window. When the fresh air comes into a house and gives you some new... Uh, it's, uh, it's refreshing to have visitors like you, so I invite all the uh, listeners of your podcast to visit us as well, <laughs> to bring fresh air into this a little room. Okay. <laughs> in the well, this is embarrassing because I feel the roles are inverted, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> Th thank you very much, Francisco. No, thank you.